It's a real pleasure to be here with you this morning. And I want to say to you, dear friends, that I have been praying that the message that the Lord has laid on my heart this morning will go by the Holy Spirit straight to your hearts. We are living in serious times. I become very conscious week by week, month by month, as to how many attacks there are on our faith as Christians and as Adventists. And the words I would share with you this morning, I want to confirm your faith, to build up your faith, because the times ahead are serious and we need to have the shield of faith very much around us in the battles that we fight day by day. Let me take you back this morning, and I think you would expect this almost from me, to take you back to that momentous year, 1844. That was the year when many people, as you know, were expecting, particularly in the United States, but not just there, they were expecting that Jesus was going to come in that momentous year. Of course, they were disappointed. We call it the Great Disappointment. But after the disappointment passed, some gave up their faith entirely. But of the remainder... Two groups separated out. Both had been listening to the preaching of William Miller. And they had been believing that Jesus was coming soon, but being disappointed, they had to deal with how would they be concerned about that disappointment? How would they deal with the disappointment? And these two groups of any size today are the Advent Christian Church and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Adventist Christ, Advent Christian Church holds to the observance of Sunday. The Seventh-day Adventist Church holds to the Seventh-day Sabbath. But both groups trace their ancestry, their spiritual ancestry, back to that great time when the world, in many ways, in many parts of the world, were expecting the second coming of Jesus. Some time ago, the leader of the Advent Christian Church fell into a conversation with the leader of the Adventist Church. And before I share that conversation, I want you to notice some statistics. Soon after 1844, the membership of the Advent Christian Church was between 30 and 50,000. The current world membership is 25,600 operating in 30 countries. Let's look at the Adventist Church. Soon after, the 1840, soon after 1844, the membership was between 50 and 150. Not thousands, dear friends, just those numbers. The current world membership is 20 million people operating in 205 countries. I want you to look at those statistics and think about them as I tell you of this conversation between the leader of the Advent Christian Church and the leader of the Adventist Church. His name was Pastor F.D. Nickel. Some of you who are older would remember his name. The Advent Christian Church said to Pastor Nickel, your church leaders through the years have been wiser men than ours. They saw the need of a publishing work and started it, the need of a medical work, of an educational work and of a great mission program. They also saw the need of a close-knit organisation. And so today you are growing fast, while we are not. 
I want you to think of and listen to what Pastor Nichols said to this man. No, my brother, I don't think that's an accurate statement. Our leaders were not wiser than yours, nor more far-visioned. The record will show that they were ordinary flesh and blood like your men, with great limitations of vision and faith. But we had in our midst a most singular woman. She marked out what we ought to do in the different branches of our work. She was specific, emphatic, insistent. We accepted her counsel and direction, for we believed that she had visions from God. That is the reason we have this marvellous organisation and why we have grown. Pastor Nicholl, dear friends, was of course speaking of the life and the ministry of Ellen White, who guided our church from its very beginnings in 1844 right through to the time of her death in July 1915. But wise, her wise and effective counsel was not the result of her abilities, her personality. But as historical research shows, she was given some 2,000 visions during those 70 years that have brought encouragement and warning and direction and comfort to the church around the world. It is a fact today, of course, as I think many of us would realise, that most Christians today have rejected her ministry because they believe that after the New Testament finished being written, there would be no more visions, no more prophets in the Christian church. I want to ask the question first, and I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, because I want to say, what does the Bible say about that? Should visions and dreams be finished when the New Testament was finished, when John was completing the book of Revelation? So open your Bibles with you first of all. I'd like you to notice Numbers chapter 12 and verse 6. Here the Lord is speaking to Aaron and Miriam. And he says something that I want you to remember throughout my talk this morning. Where God says to these two, If there is a prophet among you, I the Lord will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. You notice those words? If there is a prophet among you, the Lord will reveal himself through dreams and visions. Now that, of course, appears way back there in the book of Numbers. And we see the evidence of it throughout the rest of the New Testament and through the rest of the Old Testament particularly. But I'd like you to turn to Joel, Joel chapter 2, the second chapter, the verse that I'd like you to notice. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. Remember we're answering the question, do visions and dreams stop when the New Testament was finished? In Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, Joel writes, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now it's crucial that we ask two que- a question of that text. He says, It shall come to pass afterward. In other words, Joel merely said that from his time, around about 800 years before Christ, sometime in the future, there will be a pouring out of God's Spirit and the result will be visions and dreams, notice, given to his people. 
He also says in verse 29 that he will pour out his spirit in those days. What are the those days that he's referring to? If you go on and read the context, my dear friends, you'll find that he speaks about a darkening of the sun, the moon, the sun, the stars falling from heaven as signs, he says, of the great and dreadful day of the Lord in verse 31. So clearly that the afterward in the context when there will be visions and dreams given to God's people is, way bef- is just before the second coming of Christ, just before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Visions and dreams were not, according to Joel, to finish when the New Testament was finished being written. And then there's that text in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, where here the Apostle Paul is referring to something that when Jesus went back to heaven, he gave gifts to his church. And you can read the list that's there. But one of the gifts that God gave, that Jesus gave to the church just at the time of his ascension were prophets. Prophets. And then I'd like you to notice, and we need to turn to this text in Revelation, Because in Revelation chapter 12, a wonderful chapter, this chapter is one of the seven great visions given to John in the book of Revelation. Seven visions, and this one is one. And I'm sure you've read it before. It's the vision where John saw a woman clothed with the sun, standing on the moon, and then as the chapter develops, we see a great red dragon, identified in this chapter as Satan, The woman identified in other parts of Scripture as a symbol of the church. And here is the conflict that's going to go on from the time of the birth of Jesus right through till the end of time. An amazing chapter, Revelation chapter 12, dealing with the great conflict between Satan and his attempted destruction of the church. But you'll notice in verse 17 it describes the last part of Satan's attacks And notice the wording. You've read it before. And the dragon, Satan, was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Some translations say with the remnant of her seed, with the church of the last days. And he identifies them. They are those people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Two distinguishing characteristics of God's people in the last days. But we must ask this morning, what's the testimony of Jesus Christ? That this church will have what will be a distinguishing mark of this people? If we turn over to Revelation chapter 19, we find the answer. Because in Revelation 19, John is attempting to fall at the feet of an angel. The angel who has given him the visions in in Revelation And then we notice in verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, See that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. There's that phrase again. Then the angel says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And if we turn to the last text that I put on the screen, the Bible tells us that it is the prophets right down through time who have always had the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy. 
And so here very clearly the book of Revelation and the New Testament is identifying that there will be the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus, God speaking, Jesus speaking through prophets that will characterize his people in the last days. Joel says in the last days, just before Jesus comes, there will be visions and dreams given to his people. What's the answer to the question if we look at the Bible? I believe, dear friends, that this gift was particularly to be manifest, as Revelation tells us, in the final days of earth's history. When I stop to think about the gift of prophecy and of prophets, these men and sometimes women who have been chosen down through time to deliver the testimony of Jesus to his people, I'm reminded, dear friends, that Jesus warns us in that classic chapter, Matthew 24, that's the chapter that deals with the question that the disciples asked. You remember? What shall be the sign of your coming, they said to Jesus, and of the end of the world? And Jesus proceeds in that tre tremendous chapter to outline the signs of his coming. You will know that my coming is soon because you'll see these things happening in the world. But have you ever noticed there in those verses, in Matthew 24, verse 11 to 24, that he says twice there will be false prophets in the world and their deceptions will be so great he says in verse 24 of Matthew 24 that if it were possible they shall even deceive the very elect of God dear friends if we're living in the last days Jesus said it would be a time when there would be many false prophets he didn't say there would be no prophets at all he said there would be false ones but my question to you this morning how do we tell the difference between a true prophet and a false one. It's interesting that the Bible gives us four tests to that question. I hope you know what they are because that's the text, tests that you need to use to tell the difference between the false and the true. But oh, this morning I want to only consider one of them. That's all the time allows. But I want you to look at a text before I tell you three fascinating stories. If you go this morning over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 28 and verse 9. If you haven't read Jeremiah chapter 28 for a while, can I encourage you to read it sometime? It's a most interesting chapter because it tells of a meeting of two men. One is a true prophet and the other one is a false prophet. That's the context of the verse that we're about to read. And in Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 9, I read this. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Now that's one of the four tests the Bible gives us for telling the difference between a true prophet and a false and you'll notice that what it is essentially is that when a prophet predicts the future, if what he predicts comes to pass, you will know that the prophet has been sent by God. This morning I have chosen just three of the many predictions that Ellen White made about the future during her 70 years of ministry. And of each one, I want to ask this question. How could she have known? How could she have known?
Well, my first story is based upon this home. You've probably never seen it. It's a home over there in uh, the little village of Otsego that is situated about 50 kilometres from Battle Creek, the headquarters of the church you remember for many years. And it was in this home belonging to Aaron Hilliard and his wife, Adventists, that a group of Adventists from Battle Creek came to visit on June the 5th 1863. It was a Friday afternoon and we're told in the records that three or four carriage loads of people came to visit this home that evening. Today, that's the home as it looks. You can see it's basically the same. When we were making this film series, Keepers of the Flame, we did some filming right there at that home about the story that I'm about to tell you. In the evening of that home, in that home, Some 12 people present are gathered for a prayer meeting, family worship. And during that season of worship, that Friday evening, Ellen White was given a vision. It lasted about three quarters of an hour. What was the vision? We know it today as the health vision. And what remarkable things was she shown in 1863. Dear friends, can I remind you this morning that in 1863, the world health-wise was a very different place. No one in the world in 1863 knew the cause of disease. Nobody knew anything about bacteria or viruses. No, nobody knew. And because nobody knew the cause of disease, Various doctors came with different ways of treating disease because they didn't know what they were dealing with. And therefore some were advocating, well, if you've got disease, you've got too much vitality, therefore we should bleed people. And they took blood from people in order to cure disease. In those days, there were no antibiotics. There were no x-rays. There were no immunization. There was no blood transfusions. Night air was considered dangerous. And so they had these four-posted beds and they would lower the curtains right around the beds so that you wouldn't breathe night air. There was no relationship between what you ate and disease. People rarely bathed. And the average age of death in the 1850s and 60s was 39 years in the United States. And at that time, 1863, Friday, June the 5th, Ellen White was given a vision about health. There's so many features of it that I'd love to share with you this morning, dear friends, but I want to just select two. What did she say? Two features of that dream. One was this. Tobacco is a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind. Can I remind you, and I should have said this just a moment ago, that back in those days in the 1850s and 60s, the doctors were prescribing smoking if you had any lung problem. Notice that? Bronchitis? Then smoke and you'll get over it. That was the philosophy in those days. And yet here Ellen White was shown in that vision Tobacco is a poison, and notice the two words she uses, deceitful and malignant. Deceitful. 
You know, medical specialists say today that if a patient waits for the symptoms of lung cancer to appear, it is usually too late to save their lives. Most deceitful and most malignant, causing death, causing death. She went on to speak in other places that it would be a slow death. And you, again, doctors tell us today it takes 20 years to develop a case of lung cancer. Slow, malignant, deceitful. Here she writes, it is all the more dangerous because its effects upon the system are so slow and scarcely perceivable. Remember, this is at a time when doctors are saying to their patients, if you've got any problems with your lungs, then smoke. But may I remind you also, dear friends, it wasn't until 1957 that the American Heart Association concluded that smoking was a causative factor in lung cancer. That's nearly a hundred years later. How could this little lady know in 1863? That's not a pretty picture, dear friends. It's a photograph of the lungs of a man who died from emphysema. Normally pink, healthy. This man with lungs, black, filled with tar. But notice in the, the, what I took from the internet recently. The deaths from lung cancer in the United States. In 1954, 20,000. In 1984, 121,000. Deaths worldwide from the effects of smoking in 2005, 5,400,000. By 2030, the prediction is 8,300,000 people will die. And back in 1863, the Lord reached down to his messenger to communicate to our church. It's a malignant, deceitful, and slow poison. Back in the 1970s, they conducted the first health study of Seventh-day Adventists. 1970s, round about 100 years again after 1863, and they gathered 34,192 Seventh-day Adventists in the state of California and compared them with the same number of people in the Californian population. And they were startled with their findings. Let me put them there on the screen. If you look at the purple line, that's 100% of the average of the population in each of these following diseases. When they looked at Adventists, those 34,000, and lung cancer, you'll notice it was just 20% of the regular population. When they looked at mouth, throat and larynx cancer, you'll notice it was just 5% compared with the average population. 28% for bladder cancer, cirrhosis of the liver, 13%. Digestive tract cancer, 65%. And 66% of all other cancers. Coronary heart disease, 55%. 54% from strokes. But do you realise, dear friends, that what you're seeing on that screen is a confirmation of a prediction that Ellen White made? No, she didn't make it. 
the Lord revealed that to her to pass on to this people. Slow, malignant. Research has found that 35% of all deaths come from cancer and it is because of an improper diet. When Ellen White was revealed, it was revealed to Ellen White back in 1863 of a good diet for God's people against the ignorance of that time, how could she have known? But then I want to refer to the second Adventist health study that was commenced in 2002 and is still being researched today. They studied 96,469 Adventists. This was no mean study, my dear friends, in 50 states of the United States and in Canada. And that study has reinforced the very significant health advantages that Adventists enjoy from what the Lord has revealed to this people. Have a look at this. They discovered as a result of this examination that Adventist men live 8.9 years longer than the average population in the United States. Did you see that? And Adventist women living seven and a half years longer than the average in the United States. But then they noticed something interesting, that Adventist men who have adopted a vegetarian diet, a plant-based diet, live even 3.7 years longer than that of the yellow line. In other words, 12.6 years longer. That's a lot of extra life. Who of us would not choose to live longer so long as our health is good? Yes, there was blessings in the council that came back in 1863. In November 2005, the National Geographic, prestigious magazine, printed an article called The Secrets of Long Life. The author was a man called Dan Bootner, and this is where he first used the term blue zone. But what I was interested to see in this magazine article is that he wrote about the extra years enjoyed by Seventh-day Adventists. In fact, this is what he writes. That makes the Adventists one of the nation's most convincing cultures of longevity. Three years later, Dan Bootner released his book. Some of you may know the title. It's called The Blue Zones. And I want you to notice that in the inside cover he describes what a blue zone is. What's a blue zone? It's a place in the world where higher percentages of the population live outstandingly long lives. Residents are able to retain health and vitality well into their 80s and 90s and hundreds. But just how do they do it? By genetics? Diet? Destiny? Or is there something fundamentally different about their approach to life? Then he went on to say this. Armed with the latest research from longevity experts, people who look at how long people are living, Bootner travels to the world's four. Now, he's just produced a different, a second edition of this book in 2012, so it's now five 
blue zones. Where are they? Sardinia in Italy, Okinawa in Japan, Loma Linda in California, and the Nicoya Peninsula, Costa Rica. And the fifth one he's recently added is a little Greek island, Ikaria, to find out the answer. Their secrets are found in everyday things they do, in the foods they eat, the company they keep, and their very perspectives on life. Why did I put two words in red? Can anybody tell me this morning? Why Loma Linda? Maybe you're shy, but I'd like to think you know the answer. Because he found that that is practically filled with Seventh-day Adventists. And he found that of all the population in the United States, the one area where people were living the longest was in Loma Linda, California, that was, so, that was filled with Seventh-day Adventists, working in the large hospital there particularly at Loma Linda. Dear friends, what does that say? In this book, he visits Loma Linda to find the secret that Adventists have of being the longest living population in the United States of, the, of America. Well, what do we do with this? And have you heard of the China study? This book has revolutionized thinking in the medical lines in recent years. It was published in 2005. The author, not an Adventist, Dr. T. Campbell. You'll notice that if you read it in the blue above that main title, it says, the most comprehensive study on nutrition ever conducted. But I want you to notice the conclusions of this man. We now have a deep and broad range of evidence showing that a whole foods, plant-based diet, what Ellen White wrote in 1863, is best for the heart, cancer, diabetes and autoimmune diseases, our kidneys, bones, eyes and brains. And then he wrote this, the idea that a whole foods, plant-based diet can protect against and even treat a wide variety of chronic diseases can no longer be denied. One more. The United States News and World Report. Very prestigious magazine, news, like a newspaper. And back there in 2009, it wrote an article, 10 Health Habits That Will Help You to Live to 100. I'm not going to ask this morning about how many of you want to live to 100, but I guess it depends on the quality of life, doesn't it? But this was the article, 10 Health Habits That Will Help You Live to 100. You can read what it says there, but I'm interested in what was number eight. Live like a Seventh-day Adventist. And it goes to speak about the advantages that Seventh-day Adventists have in having a healthy body, a healthy mind, healthy spirit, so vital to our living today. How could she have known? Who told her back in 1863 that a hundred years later 
we would see scientific evidence in hundreds of research pieces confirming what she wrote. And why did she write it? Probably that's the answer we should consider. Because God loves his people, loves the world, and he wanted this people to share the good things that they have learned so that the world can be a healthy place. But let me go on and talk about the second vision, a remarkable story. To do so, and I don't know how clear that is for you, it's a map of the United States and I wanted to put that in only to show you where the state of New York is. And the state of New York is right up there in the right-hand corner. It's a green state, a fairly large state. And maybe if I put this on the, gr on the screen a little bit larger, because on the right-hand side, that's New York, and there are two American lakes, Lake Erie and Lake Ontario, and in between where one lake empties into the other lake are Niagara Falls, if that can help you find the place. But way down at the bottom of that map, you can hardly see it, I know, is the little village of Salamanca. Salamanca. And the story I'm about to tell you about Salamanca is a remarkable story. Because in Salamanca in 1890, Ellen White was there preaching. Her husband had now passed away eight years before. But she came to Salamanca to conduct some meetings, evangelistic meetings, in that little town. But one Sunday, the Sunday night in the middle of the meetings, she came home very ill and she feared she would not be able to continue the meetings. And she tells us in her diary that she knelt beside her bed and writing up in her diary the next day about this experience, she said, suddenly the room filled, seemed filled with a soft silvery light. An angel appeared to her. And in vision, it revealed, he revealed many aspects of the work in different parts of the, of the church, but particularly in the city of Battle Creek. Well, there's a map of Michigan on the left, and you can see New York State on the right. Salamanca is there, and Battle Creek is there. She was in Salamanca. She was shown a vision of what was happening over in Salamanca. You know, when I read this story, dear friends, it reminds me very much of Ezekiel chapter 8, where Ezekiel the prophet is sitting in his house, it says, there in Babylon, but in vision he's taken right over to Jerusalem to notice what's happening there. Well, there is Salamanca and there is Battle Creek. Well, after they had that experience of the vision on November the 3rd, and I want you to remember that date, on November the 3rd, the next morning, her son, Willie White, he lived with her here in Kurumbong when they were here. Willie White and another minister, Pastor A.T. Robinson, came to visit. They were concerned about how Ellen White was feeling after the vision of the, after the meeting of being so ill the night before. And as the conversation went between the three of them, Ellen White said, I need to tell you about the vision I had last night. I seem to be in Battle Creek. And then she stopped. And Willie said, yes, what did you say? What did you see? She said, I can't remember. 
Well, the conversation went on, but Ellen White knew at the back of her mind that there was something very important in that vision, and she reported, as she said to, and to Willie again, the vision I had last night was so important, I must share it with you. I seem to be over there in Battle Creek in the Review and Herald building, our publishing house. And again she stopped. And she apologised to the two men, said, I'm sorry, I can't remember what I had in the vision last night. Well... The weeks went by, three weeks went by, and then on November the 20th, when Ellen White was in New York City, she wrote out her diary. Now, I have a copy of this diary this morning. Anybody can have have a look at it afterwards. And in this diary on November the 20th, almost three weeks after November the 3rd, she writes about what she had seen in that vision. And I'm going to read it to you. She says, I saw in my vision I was present in a council and I heard words repeated by influential men to the effect that if the American Sentinel would drop the words Seventh-day Adventist from its columns and would say nothing about the Sabbath, the great men of the world would patronise it. It would become popular and do a larger work. And then she said, this looks very pleasing. Let me explain that. In those days, we were publishing a magazine called the American Sentinel. Today, the magazine is still being published by our church, except the name has changed. It's now called Liberty, because it deals with the principles of religious liberty. But she saw in this committee meeting a group of men talking and discussing and wanting to drop from the papers articles from the headlines of the paper, any word connects to suggesting the Seventh-day Sabbath, anything to do with Seventh-day Adventists, that name was to be removed from the paper. Why were they thinking of doing this? You'll notice she saw in vision the great men of the world would patronise the magazine. It would do a larger work. And then she said this looked very pleasing and she goes on to talk about the dangers of what she saw that night. After the vision of November the 3rd, she had further visions concerning the Salamancus vision and enlarged upon it. She saw in her vision one man hold up the copy of the American Sentinel high above his head and shook it with a great deal of vehemence and said, if we don't remove Seventh-day Adventist and the Sabbath from this article, from this magazine, we will take it away from our publishing house and ask somebody else to publish the magazine. The feeling was intense, dear friends. Well, four months after receiving the Salamanca vision, she was invited, Ellen White was invited to attend the general conference that was held in Battle Creek. And she went, and the meeting was held in this very impressive church. It was the largest church the Adventist church had in the world at that time, seating some 4,000 people. And there they held, had that general conference in 1891. Well, what happened? Ellen White took the morning meetings at the ministers' meetings before the general conference. And then on the Sabbath afternoon, March the 7th, she took a meeting for, with a large congregation present. And we have that many witnesses to what she saw and heard and what they saw and heard that day. Ellen White had chosen for her text, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father 
which is in heaven. And all those people present that afternoon, dear friends, heard her say early in her sermon, I must tell you of the vision I had in Salamanca back in November the 3rd last year. And then, to their amazement, they heard her apologise. I'm sorry I can't remember the vision. In the middle of the service, knowing that it had something to do with let your light shine that they may see your good works, don't put it under a bushel, don't remove the Sabbath, it's the truth from that magazine. And again, she had to apologise. Just before the sermon ended, she appealed again to this memory. The vision I had was so important. It concerned the work here in Battle Creek because she was in Battle Creek at that time. And again, she had to apologise. After the meeting that night, on Sabbath afternoon, the General Conference President came up to her and said, would you take the Sunday morning meeting? You've been taking the early, early morning meetings during the week. She said, no. The people have heard me enough. Ask somebody else to take the morning meeting. And as the people left the Dime Tabernacle, many of them were wondering, was Ellen White now in her 60s, beginning to suffer from the effects of a bad memory. She couldn't remember the visions that God had given to her. But that Saturday night, a group of people, about 32 of them as far as we know, met in the Review and Herald publishing house to discuss the editorial policy of the American Sentinel. And they met at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight, 1 a.m. And as the meeting proceeded, it grew more heated because two groups of men were arguing vehemently for their point of view. Remove the Sabbath and the name Seventh Adventist from our magazine. No, didn't you hear Helen White remind us this afternoon that we would let our light shine, not hide it under a bushel? Two o'clock, three o'clock, and just before the meeting broke up in disorder, they took a vote that they should remove the American Sentinel from our publishing house for somebody else to publish it. Three o'clock. But dear friends, I'm greatly encouraged by this story because it shows how much God knows all about what's happening to us as a church but also as individuals. We're very precious in his sight after all. And that night at three o'clock, the Lord from heaven sent an angel to the side of Ellen White, awakened her, and said, prepare the material you have written about the Salamanca vision and present it at the Sunday morning meeting. Ever obedient to the call from the Lord, she dressed, prepared the material, and as the sun was going by her home, he looked and saw a candle alight in his mother's window and thought, well, she didn't intend to take the meeting this morning. He went in and found her dressed. And together they walked down to the dime tabernacle. And Ellen White went up to speak. 
The only photo we have of Ellen White speaking is that one in the dime tabernacle. And the desk from which she spoke is there, a large, large church with a large number of people present that morning. And they heard her describe in detail the meeting of the night before. The attitude people took, the very words that they spoke in the meeting. I have an eyewitness report of this meeting in front of me and I want to just read to you a little about it. Because after her talk, she sat down and then, and I'm not going to mention the name, but you would know his name, got up to speak. And he said, I was in that meeting last night. Last night, Ellen White said, sitting behind, I thought this meeting must have taken place months ago when it was first shown me on November the 3rd. I was in that meeting last night and I'm the man who made the remarks about the articles in the paper holding it high over my head. I'm sorry to say that I was on the wrong side, but I take this opportunity to place myself on the right side. And he sat down. And another man stood up, and you would know his name. I was in that meeting last night. After the close of the conference, some of us met in my room in the review and office where we locked ourselves in and took up the, and discussed the questions and the matter that have been presented to us this morning. We remained in that room until three o'clock and Ellen White interrupted again, three o'clock. That was the time I was awakened and told to come and take the meeting this morning. And then he said this, if I should begin to give a description of what took place and the personal attitudes of those in the room, I could not give it as exactly and as correctly as it has been given by Sister White this morning. How did she know? How could she have known? In a vision on November the 3rd and not fulfilled until March 1891. And then he said, I now see that I was in error and that the position that I took was not correct. From the light that has been given this morning, I acknowledge that I was wrong. And what was happening? One by one of those 30 men that were present that night, dear friends, stood up and said that exactly what Ellen White has said they said was reported that day. My friends, how could she have known? How could she have known? I want to ask you a question this morning. Why did she try, try five times to remember that meet, that vision? Remember twice to her son the morning after? Three times the previous day, Sabbath afternoon, the afternoon before the meeting? Why did she try five times and not remember it? I believe the answer is simple because it had not occurred. If she had remembered it that Sabbath afternoon, people would have said, we don't know what you're talking about, Ellen White. Such a meeting has not occurred. Think of the timing of this experience. I just marvel, dear friends. Marvel. Remember the test when a prophet speaks about the future. If it comes to pass, then you shall know that the Lord has spoken. I have just one more story to tell you and that too is a remarkable story. 
because it's a story of a man called Stephen Smith. I don't know whether you've ever heard of this man, but before I do, I want to just remind you of a wonderful statement made in the book Desire of Ages. I know you know, or I hope you know, that Ellen White finished Desire of Ages in Avondale Road, Curranbong, and gave that wonderful book on the life of Jesus to the world. But there she has written these words that I hope will encourage each one of you this morning. Every soul is as fully known to Jesus as if he were the only one for whom the Saviour died. Did you read that? The distress of everyone touches his heart. Though now he has ascended to the presence of God and shares the throne of the universe, Jesus has lost none of his compassionate nature. Today the same tender, sympathising heart is open to the woes of humanity. Today the hand that was pierced is reached forth to bless more abundantly his people that are in the world. The soul that has given himself to Christ or herself to Christ is more precious. Think of it, my dear friends, this morning. The soul that has given himself or herself to Christ is more precious in his sight than the whole world. Do you value yourself that much? The Saviour would have passed through the agony of Calvary that one might be saved in his kingdom. He will never abandon one for whom he has died. And then this sentence, unless his followers choose to leave him, Notice the condition. He will hold them fast. God loves individuals. And the story of Stephen Smith convinces me that he does. Stephen Smith, this man. In 1850, he accepted the message of our church. He gave his heart to Jesus. He loved the Sabbath, rejoiced in the truth. He lived in Washington, New Hampshire. I don't know how many of you that have been to Washington, New Hampshire. This is one of the few churches that exists and goes right back to before 1844. A marvellous lot of history occurred in this church. But he lived in Washington, New Hampshire, where the Sabbath had first come to the Adventist church and was a member of this church. But in those days, as today, there were discordant voices. People who come to the church saying they have new light for the church you heard of them? And Stephen Smith listened and then accepted the false teachings of these people. He turned against the leadership of the church and especially the leadership of James and Ellen White. In 1851, a conference of believers in Washington, there were about 75 members in this church, assembled with James and Ellen White and Stephen Smith came among them with bitter criticism bitter opposition, and because of his views that he aired so loudly that day, he finally, they finally decided to withdraw church membership from Stephen Smith. But in 1852, the next year, Smith had a change of heart, and he requested church fellowship again. He was welcomed back, but not for long. He still held to the Sabbath, but joined one group after another which claimed to have new light for the church. And Ellen White was warning against these groups, but Stephen Smith thought that he knew better. But dear friends, the Lord still loved 
Stephen Smith. And in 1858, another vision was given to Ellen White about Stephen Smith and his future. It pointed out his dangers, showed him the consequences in the future of the actions that he was displaying at that time. But, oh, if you read that letter, dear friends, it was a wonderful assurance of God's love and acceptance if he repented. And Ellen White wrote out what she had been shown and sent it to Stephen Smith in a letter. Smith went down to the post office one day and here was a letter and as Ellen White always wrote on the front of the envelope that this is from Ellen White. When he saw it, he became angry and he said, I don't want any testimony from Ellen White. He decided that he would go home, climb the stairs, go up to his attic, opened up a trunk and placed the letter under the contents of the trunk where it remained for 27 years. Smith went on with his life. Somebody who knew him well said that, and I quote, that he had the most withering, blighting tongue of any man I have ever heard. He could say the meanest things in the meanest, most cutting way of any man that I've ever met. And he was particularly bitter to, towards the messenger of the Lord. And in this way, Stephen Smith spent what should have been the best years of his life. Twenty-six years rolled by. It's now 1884. His hair was white and his body was bent over. But one day he picked up a copy of the Review and Herald read the article on the front page and didn't look at who the author was. And at the end of reading the article, he says, that's truth. And then to his surprise, he saw the name Ellen White. And from week to week, he read the articles in the Review and Herald and began to change. Even his wife and others noticed the change in attitude of Stephen Smith. And in the following year, 1885, Eugene Farnsworth, one of the Farnsworth family at the very foundational members who kept the Sabbath way back in the 1840s, Eugene Farnsworth later became president of the Australian Conference. He came to Washington, New Hampshire, preached a sermon one Sabbath on the Seventh-day Adventist Church as a movement of prophecy. And Stephen Smith, hearing of Eugene Farnsworth, whom he remembers knowing when he was a little boy, I want to go and hear Eugene Farnsworth preach. He went and he preached. And at the end of the sermon, he stood up and said, I want to speak. And Eugene Farnsworth tells us that should he let this man, knowing his reputation to blast and criticise, should we let him speak? But he did. And he stood up. And I have a copy of a letter that Eugene Farnsworth sent to Mrs White on July the 15th, 1885, describing that Sabbath morning. He quotes from what Stephen Smith said. And then as he stood on his feet, he said, Brethren and sisters, I don't want you to be afraid of me. He talked about his experience in joining various different groups through the years. 
And then he said, facts are stubborn things, but the facts are are that those who have opposed this work have come to nothing, while those who have been in sympathy with it have prospered, grown better, more devoted, more Christ-like. Those who have opposed it have only learned to fight and debate, and they've lost all their religion. And then he said, no honest man can help but see that God is with this people. I want to be in fellowship with this people in heart and in the church. And in the week that followed, dear friends, what did Stephen Smith do? He went to his home, climbed the stairs, got the trunk, opened the letter that had lain there for 27 years, and he began to read it. And what was written then as a prediction of what would happen to him and his life was now history, his story. And he wept as he read the letter. And the appeal to turn to God at the end of it. And the following Sabbath, he went back to Washington Church. Farnsworth was preaching that day on the gift of prophecy in the church. And he continued to write in this letter to Ellen White, because at the end of it Stephen Smith stood up and I'm going to summarise it because of time but at the end of his remarks that Sabbath he said if I had heeded the testimony God sent to me it would have changed the whole course of my life and I would have been a very different man how could she have known the answer dear friends of course is that a prophet having the spirit of prophecy is bearing Jesus' testimony to individuals and to the church. Because Ellen White was always aware that what she wrote was what the Lord had revealed to her in vision. There's Eugene Farnsworth. But I want you to notice these words before I close this morning. Where Ellen White made this comment, in these letters which I write... In the testimonies I bear, notice the words, I am presenting to you that which the Lord has presented to me. I do not write one article in the paper. Those articles that Stephen Smith read and all the others expressing merely my own ideas. They are what God has opened to me in vision, the present rays of light shining from the throne. Those 2,000 visions she had during her life was the basis for all the books and all the articles that she wrote. It is true concerning the articles in our papers and in the many volumes of my books. And then she wrote these words. Does she still speak to the church today, my friends? I hear various answers to that question. But I notice this. Abundant light has been given to me, and she wrote this in 1909, in these last days. Whether or not my life is spared, my writings will constantly speak and their work will go forward as long as time shall last. My writings are kept on file in the office and even though I should not live, these words that have been given to me by the Lord will still have life and will speak to the people. Dear friends, are they speaking? I believe so. But the big question that each of us has to answer this morning, are we listening? 
Are we listening? Could you be like Stephen Smith with books on your shelf that may have been there for years unopened? Have you read Desire of Ages that Ellen White wrote here in Kurumbong? And Desire of, and Steps to Christ, which she also wrote here in Australia, and the many other books that are available to us today. Are we listening? Her writings were given not to equal the Bible. Should we study Ellen White more than the Bible? No, no, no. But she did write and remind us that little heed is given to the Bible and the Lord has given a lesser light. Notice the word. To lead men and women to the greater light. Given her counsel to lead us to the light of God's word and to the one who said, I am the light of the world. Dear friends, in her vision she was shown the beauty and glory of the home that Jesus is preparing for each one of us. And I was reading through some old copies of the Signs of the Times recently when she told of the vision she had of heaven. That's only an artist's portrayal. It must be far more beautiful than that. But this is what she wrote. The glory of the eternal world has been opened before me. And I want to tell you that heaven is worth your winning. If you could get one glimpse into the glories of that place, you would not count any loss too great if you might only walk its streets of transparent gold and sing the song of triumph with the white-robed company of heaven. An ancient king wrote words that I leave on your hearts this morning. It came at a time when King Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem found that the city was being surrounded by a large group of enemies who are out to destroy the city and the people living in it. Read about it in Second Chronicles chapter, 30, chapter 20. But in verse 20 of that chapter, he gave instruction that I leave with you this morning, dear friends, when he said this, Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Then he wrote, Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. That belief is not just an inactive belief. The devils believe and they tremble. But do we put that belief into action? Believe in his prophets and you shall prosper. It is my prayer this morning, dear friends, that as we think of that blessed coming of the Lord and of this wonderful gift that God has placed within us to help us prepare for that day, I'm so thankful and I want your faith to prosper as well in the belief that you have in that gift. Amen. We thank you for the love that you show to your people. Even when we're going in the wrong direction, as Stephen Smith did, you never cease to stop loving us. May we draw encouragement from that and encouragement from the hope that we share that Jesus is coming soon. But this morning, dear Father, we would also thank you for this gift that you have placed among us, a gift that guided has guided the church for so long, 
and still speaks to our hearts today if we are willing to listen and read. Help us, dear Father, to take advantage of everything that you've provided for us because you want each of us in your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.